Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Councilman Tony Heil from Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to my podcast before, and I hope you have, you know I've talked with a guest from every single state, including Washington, D.C., and uh, at all levels of government, from borough council and school board, all the way up to state representative and state senator, to uh, people running for governor and members of Congress and U.S. Senate. So government is a lot of different offices. There are over 500,000 elected offices in this country. A lot of them don't have a... Um, anyone running against them. It's just someone ran and a good person, good people can't win unless good people run. And I'm excited to go back to Colorado to talk to another really good person that people from across the country actually told me, you should talk to him. He's Representative David Ortiz and he's got an amazing story. Um, and he's doing a lot of good things with his colleagues in Colorado. And I'm instead of me telling you all about him, well, I invite him. So David, thank you so much for talking today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, I talk to all of my um, guests about this question, but I, I know you have a very impressive background. Instead of just getting into all your background, have you always been involved in politics and, and that kind of stuff? Or was there something in your past that made you become politically aware and active, not just in running for office, but in terms of you know being involved in any of the process? I would say my family's always been politically engaged and aware, and I think that might be a combination of you know my mom becoming a citizen through the 80s when the last time they actually had immigration reform with the Democratic mm -hmm. legislature and a Republican president. Um, and then on my dad's side of the family, I'm third generation service member. So being involved in politics has always been kind of a pastime. For me, though, personally, um, I realized how powerful policy was when I was a case manager working for Catholic Charities, resettling evacuees after Hurricane Katrina. I saw firsthand the impacts of systemic failures and how they would make it harder to to do the right thing for people that are having a difficult time and it's not through any fault of their own. I mean, a hurricane is not something that they caused. Uh, there were systemic failures, whether we're talking about systemic racism or failures in the levees and infrastructure that caused a lot of the problems. So um, I think that was the wake up call for me when I realized that if I really wanted to do some good for my community and in this world, that it has to be done through policy as well. Yeah. And that's one of the things I was really thinking about when I was looking up, talking with you as Katrina I, I remember that was like the defining moment of the second Bush term. It seemed like you said failures at all level of government, not just Republicans, but everybody, Republicans, Democrats, city, state. Um, and so Katrina has almost become a catchword for is this Obama's Katrina? Is this Trump's Katrina? Is this Biden? Which seems to minimize it. What what did did you have? What, why did you go there? First of all, like what, what did you volunteer like Katrina? I'm there. Or was it? your involvement that, you know, you had to go there? Well, so, I mean, my studies were international studies and business, so it didn't seem like that would be the first place that I would go. It was just something intense that had happened and coincided with me graduating from college. Hmm. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to get cut my teeth and do this work. I was brought on as a Spanish-speaking case manager for Catholic Charities. So I was specifically helping a specific segment uh, of community coming out of New Orleans that I was very familiar with. Again, first-generation American because my mom migrated from Mexico when she was only 15 years old. And if you've ever worked with the migrant community, you know um, how they are. It's just, I have a job already in Houston, I just need two months of rent. Or I have family in LA, I just need a bus ticket to get there. They weren't even asking for plane tickets. It was, I need a bus ticket to mm -hmm. get there. Um, so the, the migrant community is very resilient um, and very active. And we were doing this through special funding through 
the diocese because you can't use, there are certain strings attached to some federal money that you can't, you know, citizen status has to be verified, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I started in September and finished and closed out the majority of my cases by the springtime and then started working with um, the rest of the clients, English speaking clientele coming out of New Orleans. And I think that was the eye opener um, for me, just because um, I know the migrant community. I've lived in it. I grew up in it. Um, but when it comes to the systemic failures in New Orleans, I was not aware of it. Mm-hmm. And there was a learning curve that went into it. So um, I think it was co- it just coincided with when I graduated from college and it was an intense experience and I wanted to do good and be a part of it. In that naive desire to do good, I realized and learned really quickly that it's policy and systemic failures um, that I need to be involved in as well if I want to do true good. And we're both in government. I'm on a local level and council when you're in state government. One of the things I see as a failure that seems like it from there is a lot of people in government think things are good enough. The way we've been doing things is good enough. And then good enough leads to all of these kind of holes in the policy and then things falling apart because they hadn't been addressed over months and years and decades. Is is that the kind of failures that were there or is it lack of awareness, lack of funding? What what were the things that you saw that now that you are in government, you can kind of use that as a learning opportunity? I think for me, the most detrimental part, my personal experience, the most detrimental part of uh, or obstacle that gets in the way of passing the best politi- policy is politics. I know that sounds ironic, but a lot of the time you have electeds that care more about their career, care more about optics than they do doing the right thing. Um, that's just my person. I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying when that does rear its head, it is extremely frustrating and disappointing. Um, so I, I would say from my perspective, that's the thing that gets in the way. And the most, and honestly, representation. Look, you're, you're looking at the Colorado State Capitol that was not accessible until I got elected. ADA was passed in what, 1990? And... Just last year, the state capital became accessible. And I mean, there, there's no small coincidence that that was also a banner year that we had disability rights laws passed in the state of Colorado was my freshman year. Now, I wasn't the prime sponsor on all of them. I'm not going to take credit for that. But I think having a peer um, that lives in a certain way that needs and requires accessibility when they can see a peer uh, that is directly impacted by that, I don't doubt that that had an effect. And I have had peers tell me as much that you know, we do our best to try and represent all of our constituents, but this is why representation matter. And this is why it's important having you here. Yeah. I get the impression from talking to so many people in my own life and on the podcast, that's why it's not just important to elect Democrats, but just who you elect mm-hmm. and the perspective they bring. Cause it sounds like people may have, you know, their intentions may be fine. doesn't make them bad people, but if you don't know people in that situation, it's out of sight, out of mind. Absolutely right. And that goes with living with a disability, but something that surprised me the most was being a combat veteran, a post-9-11 veteran. One of the bills that was actually the heaviest lift for me was a veteran preference hiring bill, which exists in 21 other states. Hmm. And so to my peers' credit, and I say peers like Team Democrats, to my credit, they uh, forced me to focus the bill in a way that helps a segment of veterans that, that where the data shows they need the help, which is veterans in transition. But even then, when I narrowed the bill down to that, Uh, it was like pulling teeth and it almost didn't pass. And that speaks to the fact that I am the only post 9-11 veteran among the House Democrats. And I'm one of two veterans among the House Democrats for the state of Colorado. The other is uh, Representative Tom Sullivan, amazing human being, amazing champion for for gun safety. 
mm-hmm. and responsible gun ownership. So, I mean, and that, that, that was surprising to me. And I know a number of people who are now post 9-11 veterans who have served in government. I know uh, Patrick Murphy was a member of Congress from my state in Pennsylvania, and I've known him for many years, and he's a really great person in government who has done things in government. Um, but there's, like you said, a very small number of pe- percentage of people in government are post 9-11 veterans. What does that particular experience mean? Because 50, 40 years ago, there was a huge percentage of people who were veterans from World War II and Vietnam, but now there's a smaller percentage of these more recent veterans. I mean, personally, I would like to see the percentage grow for, for the simple reason that we know what it is. And I'm not, this doesn't exclude anyone else knowing it, but it is u- wholly unique and across the board for those that serve in the military. We know what it is to, to work with people that we don't pick. Well, what I mean by that is we, you know, the military recruits people from urban and rural areas, suburban areas, all religions, all faiths. Mm-hmm. We're talking about atheists, Christians, uh, Muslims, Jewish, Wiccan, like everything of everything. And they put you together strip down some of your individuality and make you work as a team. And as you're training and going to combat together, you don't just become a team, you become family. And so you learn to work together. You learn to put your differences aside for a greater good. And I think that's something that's missing. I think we're seeing that right now on the federal level um, among the Democrats with this priority infrastructure legislation that Biden is trying to pass. Mm -hmm. If they don't get it together, they could be directly responsible for allowing Trump populism to make a comeback. And I don't doubt that if we had more veterans that were progressive and moderate, that were Democrats, that we wouldn't have this problem because we know what it is to be a part of a team and to be a part of something so much bigger than yourself. And I I find that another frustrating part of my service at the state capitals. We have a team in loose terms of amazing individuals, but rarely do I feel uh, that same magic or secret sauce that you feel in the military. One thing about the team aspect of politics that I have found from talking with a number of people is you form a team when you run for office because there's a lot of people going through the same experience at the same time. Uh, you were recently elected, not this past, you know, that quickly, but no. so you have people in Colorado who have ran along the same time as you, maybe the cycle before or, you know, after in some way. And then you have people who've been there for a while. Do you feel a different kinship with some of the newer members because maybe their experience is more direct with the, the current process of government? I do and I don't. And I'll say this because I, I worked as an advocate and lobbyist before I ran for office. Mm-hmm. So there were Republicans and Democrats that I worked with on veteran bills at the state capitol that I had a relationship with. So, And I maintain that close relationship now that I'm on the other side of the glass, as we say it. Um, as far as like the freshman class, there's definitely a, a camaraderie and a kinship. But, you know, just like anything else, you're closer to some than others. We will support each other and push and rally together. Um, And I think part of that is because we have such a similar experience, especially when it serves the caucus um, or something greater than ourselves. But, you know, we all have people that we're closer to. And I want to give a shout out to um, a few of the ones that I look up to. I mean, I look up to all of them. So don't just because I don't mention some don't (laughs) take that. But I mean, you know, Rep. Iman Judah being the first Muslim woman ever elected in the state of Colorado. Uh, Representative Jennifer Bacon, who served on the Denver School Board, uh, who under who undersells herself all the time, but she comes with so much experience and knowledge and wisdom, uh, and brings so much to the table to our caucus. And I got to say, Representative Judy Amabile is another one as well. I mean, with her son dealing with schizophrenia, and she's open about that, so I'm not saying anything she wouldn't say. But she truly is a champion for mental health, and she thinks of it in ways that the rest of us do not. Um, so you know, there there are 
ones that, that, that call my attention more than others. No, that that's great. I think one of the things um, I've learned as well through, again, through my own experience and through the podcast is that there seems to be a lack of diversity of perspectives, not just racial or, you know, there's only one state with a majority female legislature. Um, you know, there's obviously lack of uh, true diversity in other ways as well. One of which is the ability to run for office, the ability of time, right? Because in government, um, you know, I talked to Stephen Woodrow, and dang, dang it, he's a lawyer. And so there's a lot of lawyers. <laughs> he's a nice guy, but there's a lot of lawyers in, uh, in politics because they have the time to do it. Do you see – what kind of burdens do you think that there are to getting those diverse people to be in politics? Not because of any particular diversity, but to just get those perspectives in. Well, I'll say this for lawyers is they do have – they do have a, a wealthier network just because that is a profession that tends itself yeah. or that lends itself to make money. I remember I met with uh, Attorney General Phil Weiser on the beginning of my journey. Uh, and, you know, I really appreciate that he even made the time for me. But one of the pieces of advice that he gave me was, you know, you need to turn to your networks. You need to turn, especially to your alumni network. And I went to a private Catholic university. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are do-gooders, what I call do-gooders. You know what I mean? We're, we're advocates for organizations that can't really pay a lot or, you know, just blue-collar workers. Um, so that's obviously not going to work for me. I am first-generation American. I come from a veteran family of migrant uh, migrants and sharecropping far farmers way back, you know. So, um, But I think uh, what helped me overcome that was how my story and my service resonated with people. And here's the thing about voters. They can spot, usually they can, they can sniff out genuine public servants versus people that are in it for themselves. Um, and in fact, this speaks to how I got recruited to run for office because I'd said no five different times because um, I really enjoyed the work that I was doing for veterans. I enjoyed being an advocate lobbyist for veterans. But um, Senator Pedersen, uh, Brittany Pedersen out of Lakewood was the one that recruited me. And when she thinks she's right, dang it, she doesn't take no for an answer. Um, so um, that's part of the reason why I was there. And I think the story and the, the genuine desire to serve is what kind of rallied people together. And when we saw... Um, the fundraising pouring in when we saw the support and part of the difficulty of running for office as, as, a, as a disabled individual that uses a wheelchair about mobility devices, there are two ways to get on the ballot. You either go through caucus or you can get signatures, but here's the thing. There's always steps on every door mm -hmm. to get to a doorbell. And so, um, it was really caucusing that made running for office accessible for me because then I could directly call the precinct chairs or the delegates that were going to be at caucus and then start organizing events at locations that I knew were accessible so they could get to meet and know me that I went on the ballot. And there's a big movement in the Democratic Party to poo-poo on caucuses and to move away from them. And that's a prime example of why representation matters or unintentional ableism because they are not realizing that that is the most accessible way for somebody living with a disability to get on the ballot. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of difficulties that come with running for office, especially if you belong to the community of color, you know, your community just doesn't have the disposable income that the white community has, um, for example. And I noticed this when I was doing call time and when I would be endorsed. I mean, when I would call into the call lists of white candidates, the average dollar amount that I would raise per person called was just so much higher than when I would be calling into like the Latin, you know, the Latino or Latinx, Hispanic, whatever term you, you just you desire. Uh, or the you know the, or black individuals, uh, and that goes the same with this, with people that live with a disability. We're four mm -hmm. times more likely to be under the poverty line. 
Right. Because simply because of access. So there are a lot of difficulties that come for running for, and I, like, I can't speak to this directly because I'm not a woman, but I can tell you that anytime a woman runs for office, they are dealing with overt and disgusting sexism. Um, and just whether we're talking about outright sexual harassment or just from the beginning, them and them, but I say some people in the community assuming that they can't do the job. So, I mean, yeah, it comes with difficulties depending on who you are. And not just running for office, but then being in office. Like you said, the dis- if you're a disabled person, those things are pretty obvious. Well, not obviously to the people who have left it that way, but um, I've heard story after story, It's especially in the state level, um, but obviously in all levels of government where especially legislators who have been there for 20, 30 years who, you know, they just their feelings towards women in office feel like they're from 200 years ago, not 20 years ago. And I'm yeah. sure that your colleagues see that way too often. Absolutely. And obviously you get it more from one side of the aisle than the other, but let's not pretend that it doesn't come mm-hmm. from our own sometimes too. Um, you know, and it's, and it's really disappointing and, and we all have to look within ourselves, just like I'm asking my peers to look within themselves and not be ableist, whether they mean to or not. Like we men need to look into ourselves and ask ourselves, how are we being a part of the solution of taking down the patriarchy? How, how are we supporting our women and women of color when it comes to leadership roles like committee chairs or, you know, assistant majority leader Mm -hmm. or majority leader or speaker? What are we doing to be a part of the solution? I mean, which is why... I supported who I supported uh, for uh, majority leader and supporting Representative Herod, a woman of color. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I ju- you just got to do what you can in the big and small ways to try and be a part of the solution. Now, um, in my personal background, I work for uh, disabled people a lot. I work with uh, people with ALS. It's a uh, condition that is actually most uh, veterans are twice as likely to be diagnosed with ALS. And so I very much in tune with what you're saying. What do people not understand about access for people who are disabled. I, I know from my own professional experience, but I haven't lived it like you have, though I have in my family. Um, what are some of the the things that policymakers can do to improve access, not just in government, but in life uh, for life with, for people who are disabled? Well, I think the first step as in anything is to seek to understand and mm-hmm. learn. And not just for themselves, but also to try and support individuals with disabilities to be at the table, to be in positions of leadership, to make those decisions. You know, we always have the saying, nothing about us without us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, that they can do to be a part of the solution is making sure when there is a board set up, for example, that's about access or even a board that's set up for healthcare reform. Mm-hmm. You know, on the surface, you're like, you, you might not think to include somebody that lives with a disability, but who better to include than someone who is more times than not really dependent on a healthcare system, whether we're talking about a visible or invisible disability, whether we're talking about something intellectual or mental, or whether we're talking about something actually physical. Uh, so I, th- I think that's the, the biggest thing I can say. I think what surprised me the most is I came to this injury with a lot of ableism of my own. Mm-hmm. You know, you're t- I, I was 30 years old when, when I became disabled. I was running five minute miles. I was a combat aviator. My life was anathema to in my opinion, at least in my ableist mindset, to the way I live now. Um, and I didn't know how, what kind of quality of life that I would have, and I was so down on it because our, our nation, our world is not made for us. So the easiest things you can do is fight for basic access. When we say this is about basic access, how about you believe us? Mm-hmm. We're not just pretending. We've, we've had those stories where we try 
and spend time with our family and go to a place of business and it's not accessible. We're talking about we can't even get into the place of business or we can't even have the basic dignity of getting into the bathroom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, when we say, well, we want to fight for our rights and advocate, like I was a lobbyist before I was an elected leader and the state capital was not accessible. So how can I be on equal footing with anyone else when it comes to interacting with my elected leaders if I can't get everywhere, if I can't access my elected leaders? Uh, same thing goes with courthouses. I mean, you, you think about all of the services that any individual needs to access. You need to start with making sure they're accessible. Even websites. That was the thing that we that I'm most proud of that we got passed because it is a first in the nation disability rights law here in Colorado that mandated that state government and lower make their websites accessible. It seems like a no-brainer. It seems obvious, but that is that doesn't exist anywhere else in this country. And during a time of COVID, when a lot of the information we got, whether it was about pop-up vaccination clinics at the beginning or information out there on like different levels and what safety public health measures that comes with, was accessed through the website. And if it's not accessible to someone that has a print disability, they're not getting that information. Mm -hmm. You're putting them at risk. Uh, so that's, I know I just kind of went on a rant, but that is, <laughs> I mean, it, it is, a, for me, it starts with basic access. Mm -hmm. and if you start solving those problems when it comes to access to healthcare, employment, um, just being able to participate in everyday life, you will see some of the other issues start to resolve themselves. I know. I'm glad you say it because <clears throat> when you said make sure they're at the table, sometimes you mean literally that the table has yes. to be accessible for the room to get from your wheelchair to the table. And people don't think about those things. Absolutely right. So it sounds like you guys are making advancements. And I have to say from being from Pennsylvania and I look and talking on my podcast, some states have cooler governments and Democrats and other states just in terms of what they're able to do. And some red, some very blue states have Democrats who are been there forever and are kind of like – they're almost like Joe Manchin. Nothing – I mean I'm not trying to trash on him necessarily, but they're kind of lower on – but do you see from your experience both as a lobbyist and now as an elected official and moving things, do you see some progress both in your government and in your party? I absolutely do, in both. I mean, the fact that we've now got what we call the trifecta, we've got the executive and, and both branches of the legislature, um, we're really able to, to, to put forward a progressive vision for working families, for people with disabilities, for the community of color. Um, we're seeing that play out here, which is really exciting. And as far as my party goes, like, yes, I have. I mean, the fact that my peers are open to learning from my experience and supportive in a lot of ways, especially for the, you know, the disability aspect um, is very heartening for me. Now, do we still have a long way to go? Of course, I, of course we do. I think we do. I think being blind to intersectionality is something that I wish my caucus would be better at, and specifically when I talk about veterans, mm -hmm. over half of veterans leaving service are coming out with a temporary or permanent disability. Yeah. Okay, think about that. Half, that is half of a population, half of the less than 1% that, that swear an oath to the Constitution. Um, so I think, I think they could do better on that, but I, I can't tell you without their support, and I want to give a shout out to the Democratic Latino Caucus's support on that disability rights bill, I don't think it would have passed. Um, and so they write, even though we are the Latino caucus and disability rights doesn't overtly seem like it jives in with the priorities of the Latino caucus, um, they understood really quick that those that live with the disability in the community of color, if the dis disabled community is marginalized overall, how much more marginalized are those that are in the community of color that live with the disability? Mm -hmm. Um, and being that I'm one of their own, they put a lot of their weight in supporting this bill and making sure 
um, that it was passed. So I have to thank them for that and appreciate them for that. It sounds uh, very hopeful because I think a lot of people um, will look at people in politics and think, that person should be in office, but not me. Maybe because I have a disability, maybe because I don't have um, a good skill or background. But you have to lean on each other, both sometimes both um, metaphorically and really, um, because I think that a lot of people are scared to run. Do you think that your experience can uh, promote, tell people that you shouldn't be scared to run for office, you belong here? Uh, yeah, not only do I say you should be scared to run for office, you belong here, but if I, I precisely think because they are saying to themselves, maybe I don't belong there, is why we need them there more. Yeah. Because those people tend to be more selfless. Mm -hmm. Those people tend to be less political and more about good policy and supporting each other. And that's what we need, because those that put politics above policy, uh, that, that put some of the worst aspects... Those are the ones that have the ambition to run. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that want to be there all the time. Uh, and so, for, and, and to be honest with you, come in with open eyes because it will frustrate you. Like you do belong there and I want you to be there. Uh, but, but mentally steal yourself because it is a tough place to be in, especially when there are more of them and less of you. Um, that's been my experience. And I've even seen that in some veterans that are starting to run for office that said that about themselves in the beginning and are now like, I don't know if this is for me. And being one of those that is kin to them, I'm like, please, please don't say that. Please stay here because I don't want to be left alone. Like, mm -hmm. uh, we need more of you. So please. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this thing from when I was in sixth grade because I had a teacher who would say, oh, when you go to high school, no one's going to help you. You're not going to like, you can't be asking for help now in sixth grade for this because no, they're not going to give you the answers to the test. You're not going to have a calculator. Well, that turned out to be a lie. Um, and then they're like, and then, oh, but when you're in the real world, is it like when I was young and maybe this was your experience too, is kind of built up that the real world is going to stomp on you and it's going to be too tough. And that's just what you should expect. And now that I'm a policymaker and in, involved in things like, yeah, that's kind of true, but maybe we can make it so the real world doesn't suck so much. And so maybe we can tell, like, my kid when he's in sixth grade, like, hey, the real world's going to help you out. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that perspective. I was kind of raised the same mm -hmm. way. I, I mean, my parents always raised me. At the end of the day, no one is going to care about you and support you like your family. Your blood right. is everything. That's kind of what they told me. Um, and to a certain extent, I have found that to be true, but also it's this weird dichotomy because also the people that I've chosen to surround myself with and the relationships that I've built throughout my life uh, have proven the opposite. And I will specifically speak to my brothers and sisters that I served with early on in my injury, because I came with so much ableism at the beginning for the first two months, I wished I would have died in that crash. Mm. Being very honest. Like I wished I would have died in that crash. And if it weren't for some of my brother and sisters that I served with coming to see me, one in particular um, who passed away on a crash later, um, during deployment, Jose Montenegro um, made me promise him. He's like, he's like, I know that look. You have to promise me you're not going to give up mm -hmm. because you're one of the smartest ones among us. I know you still have a role here and God has you here for a reason. Um, so, you know, it, it's about making sure that you are discerning in, in building your team and your family. And here's the thing too, like if you give a little and you set up others for success, if you truly want the good for others and you show that, if you are truly there in the service of others and not yourself, you will be pleasantly surprised at how many people show up for you. And that's what it needs to be about. I think that dog-eat-dog -dog mentality 
can kind of be like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you believe that's the way the world is, then you're going to treat others that way and people aren't going to want to show up for you if that's going to be your mm-hmm. attitude, right? If you're going to use and abuse others just as a stepping stone to get up ahead and think that, oh, well, I'm in it for myself, uh, then that kind of creates its own self-fulfilling pro- pro- prophecy. I will say that my parents raised me to be as independent as possible and fight for myself because there was a moment when my leadership in the military were fighting against me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did feel very alone. I worked to make sure I wasn't alone. I mean, I went to my elected leaders, to the media, and within a month, the leadership at the Warrior Transition Battalion was transferred and gone, and I got new leadership, and within a month, I was at Craig Hospital. So, again, it, for me, it's it's kind of like a very Aristotelian where you want to go for that golden mean. The truth is probably right. somewhere in the in the middle. Yeah, being independent is good. I mean, we, we have um, people we helped out with a hurricane situation here, like – not as bad as Katrina, but we had the worst storm we've had in our town in over 50 years. And so it's great that we're helping people in hotels, but they also need to be independent at a point and they have to live their life. That's not being mean. It's just how life is. So right. you're right. A happy medium. Um, you, uh, I want to talk about your family because you did talk about immigration and the, um, the build back better act, uh, whatever is going to be part of it. Hopefully it all is, but one of it, it does include, streamlining immigration and i know we would probably both like some more robust immigration reform but one of the things i've been learning about is just the very slow process for immigration and the lack of judges and lack of staff handling it what do you see as some of the are those big hurdles or what are the things that like man if everyone just saw this we could fix x y and z it doesn't have to be that hard to improve this you know, I'm very cynical because Democrats have had the trifecta before, mm-hmm. and they've had every opportunity to fix this. At this point, I don't believe Democrats when they say they're, they're, they really care about immigration and they want to fix it, mm-hmm. because they could have up to this point, and they have not. Uh, so I, they wonder why uh, the Latino voting bloc is not as united, because even though I'm a Democrat, I remember. I remember that it was a Reagan presidency that reformed immigration last. My family remembers that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, like, not to sound like a cynic, but I'm I'm not too confident. It's just it's a nice talking point to try and drum up Latino votes, and you know I would urge my Latinos to keep voting for Democrats because I guarantee you Trump populists aren't going to support you right. and the things that you care about. Um, at the same time, I want to I want to shake Democrats awake and say, wake up! You've had opportunities to fix this over the past twenty plus years. Do it. Get it done, or stop talking about it. I'm done. I'm I'm over. I'm over these nice talking points. Oh, maybe we can do smaller, big things. At this point, I'll take anything that I can get. Right. I don't care how big or small it is. Do something. Show me that you actually care and that this is a real priority. It does seem like immigration and, and immigrants, both new people coming now, it's always the thing that de- that Democrats, even very liberal Democrats in other ways, that's the group that's easiest to say, well, maybe next time. Well, because think about it. We don't, like, if we're talking about migrants, they don't technically vote. Right. And I know this is going to make politics sound very cynical, but they don't technically vote. And it's not like they have a bunch of disposable income. And it's not like, according to law, they can give anyways. Right. So not to, not to boil it down to the most Machiavellian um, formula, but it, it is an easy community to say maybe next time too. Well, and, you know, this coming. Kind of goes to, I don't know how you fix that necessarily, that mentality, unless it's, you know, like you said, being visible. But I remember I was a big fan of Paul Wellstone growing up. And I, was, I remember when he passed away, I was working on a campaign at the time. And um, 
But he had voted for the Defense of Marriage Act, and he said, kind of sitting, he was like, look, I regret that vote, but I needed to, I, I was better to get me back in the Senate to do all these things, and it was not popular at the time. So how do we get past the point where it's politically palatable to get everyone on board, given the state of politics where, you know, you have so much power in just a few states when it comes to senators of the way the government's set up. Is there a way we can politically fix it? I mean, I, I really, not to shirk the question, Tony, but I think if I had to answer that question, I would probably be making a lot more money. Let's yeah. just be real frank about that. Um, I, you know, I, essentially what I feel like you're asking me is how do we fix the system? Because I think part of what's wrong with the system is there are people out there that care more about their re-election than doing the right thing. And then, and they fool themselves into thinking that they are this chosen one. They are the only ones. It's better to get me re-elected and to have me there than to solve this problem that has been around for 20 years. Oh, longer, one yeah. Thing that, yeah. One thing that I am very humbled by and that my peers always are like, no, that's not true, is I say, I am easily replaceable mm -hmm. with Democrat X. Like, as long, like, at, during Trump populism, any Democrat could be doing essentially the role that I do. And a lot of my peers are like, no, look at the changes that you've made and, and how you fought for people with disabilities. I'm not trying to sell myself short in that. But my point is if I, here's like swords that I would fall on. If I could revamp and um, reform higher education mm -hmm. and that was a sword I would fall on, but I could never run for office again. If I could make that kind of a deal, I would. Or if I could get rid of Tabor, this is, we have a unique law in Colorado. It's called the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Um, Essentially, it sounds like a neat idea, um, but essentially what it does is it, it creates a situation where we can't be fiscally responsible. In this yes. state. We can't raise taxes without going to the people. And on the surface, that sounds like a great idea, but there's a reason that no other state has a law like this, red or blue. And my favorite story to tell about this is a Republican governor and legislature in Arizona was thinking about passing a law like this in 2012. And the then Republican governor, Jan Brewer, came to Colorado to see how that experiment was going, immediately went back to her home state and vetoed that bill. Because yeah. it's, it, it is not – so my point being, though, it, like if I could get certain wins in moving the needle and it would cause me to not get reelected, depending on the issue, I would do that. Mm -hmm. The problem is we have, we have people that are so egocentric and in love with power and think that they're the only one that can do good and that it's better to get reelected than it is to try and solve some of the deeper issues, whether we're talking about climate change or immigration, as long as we have individuals that – believe in their own self-importance more than Team America or about doing the good work, we're going to have this situation. And just like Pete Buttigieg <laughs> said in the primaries last time, they're the Republicans are going to call you all these things anyway. They're going to call every Democrat. I mean, they called Joe Biden like the most liberal socialist president ever. <laughs> and it's like, that's Joe Biden? <laughs> Yeah, have you met him? <laughs> yeah. He's running against Bernie Sanders, like, and, and like. So I think people, yeah, you're, you're nervous. They're going to be called a lot of names, or they're going to be called a lot of names anyway. Yeah, I mean, you have to have thick skin in in this field. I'll say that. I mean, there's people that have tried to paint me as a socialist communist, and I'm like, mm, all right, sworn oath to the Constitution. My grandfather actually fought fascists called Nazis. My dad was an Air Force pilot during the Cold War, so. We fought communism, and I fought insurgents, so I fought terrorists. I think I know what domestic terrorists look like, too. So mm -hmm. you can say whatever you want. I mean, usually when I throw that card out there, it quiets arguments. Like, you just have to find 
a way to authentically be yourself and not care about what others say at the end of the day. That's what works for me. That's the way I, what I want to bring to, to, to my time in elected office, whether that's an entire career or just a few years. So I need to transition now to the point of the podcast, which is you, you just said, well, I'm easily replaceable. So like it almost sounds if I'm listening, well, any Democrat should run. But have people listening at all levels of government, whether it is school board, which is very important, or it is Congress or anything else, why would you be encouraging people to think about running, especially now that they'll be thinking about not 2021 is basically over now, 2022 and beyond. Why, why and how would you encourage other people to run for office? Um, I mean, the why, I would say, is because we need, we need more American citizens that have lived a normal life that deal with the issues that your average American deals with to be in office, that will be willing to put the good work up above uh, their own egocentric pretension. We need people like them to get involved. And it's specifically the people that think, maybe not me, maybe this is too hard for me, or maybe this is too much for me. Because it's often the ones that are like, oh yeah, definitely me. This is, this is something I've always wanted to make a mm-hmm. career that kind of continue to feed into this machine and aspects of the machine that we all dislike. So if you're considering running uh, and you have a little bit of doubt, I'm going to encourage you and say that's precisely why we need leaders like you. Mm -hmm. Because you know how serious this work can be and you know the potential for good that you have to do. Uh, The very fact that you don't greedily crave power or think you're the person to fix everything. Remember Donald Trump's like statement, only I can fix it. The fact that you're not that person that that thinks that – it's probably the reason why we need you there. And you will bring a perspective and a viewpoint that your peers need more than you realize. Um, and we will benefit from having you there. Terrific. And, and the last question is, I, I mean, I'm inspired. I would like to come and advocate with you, but and I've never been to Colorado, though my friends have been and say it's terrific. Um, if people want to learn more about you and maybe reach out and find out like why they would, uh, why they should get involved and how, how should they learn and reach out to you on social media? Or yeah, absolutely. Um, the best place to go to is my website first. Um, if you go scroll to the bottom, um, you'll have the contact information for my aide and myself. Um, at the bottom, it's uh, www.davidortiz. That's O-R-T-I-Z. dot com. So altogether, it's just David Ortiz, Colorado. dot com. So that's the best way, and then you can access all my social media. You can access numbers, whatever you feel. Um, is your favorite mode of communicating. That's the best way. For social media, it's real simple. It's just at David D for my middle initial as in dog. So at David D Ortiz C-O. That's great. You're, you're pretty – I bet there's a lot of other David Ortiz's out there. So you're pretty lucky that you got all that. It's the John Smith of Latino names, and, and that's what caused me to keep uh, getting my Colorado driver's license for five years because there was a warrant out for – a David Ortiz in New Mexico and in New Jersey. That's a whole another story. I Speaking of which, I've got to end on this. I did get a message to my email. Somehow there was a Tony Heil in, I think, Littleton, like in Colorado. Like The DMV said, oh, your appointment for your DMV appointment is tomorrow. And I was like, no, it's not. Wrong person. <laughs> there, and I looked up. I was like, there is another Tony Heil there. I hope he's a nice person. So if you find him, tell him we had this conversation. And maybe that will be an extra vote or supporter. 
I'll tell him he better show up on, on time and he better behave himself. No worries. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you showed up on time. I know you would do every day, and I hope that everyone listening will follow and uh, be inspired by David. Thank you so much, uh, David, and I hope everyone listening will run for office too. Tony, thanks for having me.